Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate product people. Now, I know that Clubhouse is all the rage and everyone's saying it's going to kill podcasting, but why don't you and I keep podcasting alive just that little bit longer by sharing this episode with as many of your friends as possible so they can help to keep it alive too. On tonight's episode, we'll be speaking about the importance of having diverse opinions in the room, about how my guest couldn't get onto Clubhouse because of her name, what happened when she tweeted about it, the support she got from the community, how Clubhouse responded, and some of the questions that it raised. We'll also talk about whether Clubhouse was all worth the fuss once you got on there. For answers to all these questions and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Candice Poon. Candice is a Tetris-obsessed, techie and fuzzy product, uh, I mean program manager at Microsoft, working on Microsoft Edge the company's attempt to put Internet Explorer behind it. Candice was all over Twitter recently when she tried to get under Clubhouse and was told her name was offensive, which kicked off a debate about diversity in tech and product, which, given it was on Twitter, I'm sure was respectful, productive, and settled amicably. She's on Clubhouse these days, but found time to step away from the app that's going to kill podcasting to come and help me keep it alive. Hi, Candice. How are you tonight? Hi, Jason. How's it going? Thanks for having me. No problem. So, So first things first, you're on Clubhouse. Uh, was it worth the wait? Yeah, uh, I've been having some fun recently with it. And I think just as kind of a big tech fan myself, it's always really fun and compelling to try something new. So after the whole debacle and getting in, it's been kind of, it's been fun to be new to uh, a new tech and explore. So are you on there like all the time now, basically just completely rinsing it? Or, or do you just kind of dip in from time to time? I dip in time to time. It's been interesting just because their network effects are a little bit different. Like it imports your contacts list and it notifies you. But a lot of the people I generally follow aren't in my contacts list. So I've been just kind of exploring, looking for places to to listen in on stuff as well. So seeing a little bit more people from work and in my like work network joining too. And so I'm really compelled to see how they end up using the platform for that area. Yeah, we'll watch this space, and if I ever get an iPhone or they ever diversify into non-iPhones, I'll see what I can do as well. So you are a PM at Microsoft. We're not going to go into the program product debate. So you're a PM at Microsoft working on Microsoft Edge. Yeah. But what are you specifically working on with Microsoft Edge, and what problem are you solving for the team? Yeah, so uh, I've been a program manager at Microsoft for three years, almost three years in a month, exactly. And so I work on Microsoft Edge, which is the browser, and I work on the experiences team. The feature that I'm focused on is a feature called collections. And so really at the core of it, it's meant to be an easier, more intuitive way for people to save content on the web. And when we looked at the browser space, we realized that more and more people are spending time in the browser and doing a lot more things. But the built-in tools in the browser haven't really modernized for this age too, even with if you think of like the browser bookmark, all you can really save is like the title, the text, and a 16 by 16 favicon. And so it's not really useful in these modern contexts. So collections makes it really easy for you to save, you know, URL, but an image, text, we run some machine learning. And so we really want to make it easy to kind of have like this workable canvas built into the browser to save stuff. 
So is this a big differentiator then between, say, Edge and some of the other browsers, or is it that they all have something similar, but you're just trying to make a better version? Yeah. uh, So actually about three years ago, right when I started, we made the announcement that we were actually going to be switching to the Chromium open source project for Edge. And there was a number of reasons for it. You know, as one part of it is just to enable web developers to have an easier time in terms of overall compatibility. But the other real reason was exactly like how you described, kind of giving us the space and time and attention to think about differentiation. And so we really saw this as a ripe opportunity. You know, most browsers today will have some type of saving affordance. And we thought we could put our own spin on it. Yeah, that's really cool. But the team isn't just that team. There's, it's obviously got a bunch of other people doing a bunch of other bits and pieces to keep developing that browser. So what does the kind of topology of the team look like? How many teams have you got? How many product or program teams do you have working on Edge in total? Yeah, I think this is the really interesting aspect of working at a place like Microsoft, where kind of the reach and the user base is actually quite diverse. And so you can kind of think about each of the teams really focused on one core segment area. So my team's really focused on consumer, the standard user. But then you have uh, teams focused on enterprise and education, and then the whole area of like privacy and security, which is paramount in all those experiences. So a couple hundred people on each of these teams all working together. And then core vision, like you said earlier, uh, is kind of just building a new modern browser, you know, that solves the problem for each of those main segments. And you don't have any old apps that you still use internally that you have to go back to Internet Explorer for or anything like that, I guess? We are often our own, uh, we dog food a lot our own solutions. And so when we saw that Edge actually had the capability to run a lot of legacy stuff without popping up new windows, we were cheering internally for a really (laughs) long time. And so now it finally shifted and we're hearing kind of the same sentiment for a lot of enterprise users too. So we're happy to hear it. Well, rest in peace, Internet Explorer, I guess. So you started out though before that, doing some programming back out east in New Jersey or New York, New Jersey? Yep, yep. Uh, So I actually went straight to Microsoft uh, after graduating university. I attended university upstate New York at an institute called Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. So it's a very traditional engineering school. And I was actually actually there for five and a half years. So I stayed around for a while. I did my bachelor's and also did my master's. A little bit more background on that too. So I did my bachelor's in a program called uh, Information Technology and Web Science. And then I dueled with Electronic Media Arts and Communication. So those combination of words are just a fancy way of saying I really <laughs> like technology. And I also really love the design and the kind of the sociology around it. And then I stayed an additional year and got my master's in, in entrepreneurship, some more of the business side as well. So was that the jumping off point then into saying, hey, I want to go and work in product? So you've got the tech side, you've got the passion for technology, you've got the business experience that you gained as well. So did that make product management, as we'd call it in the rest of the world, did that make that like a really attractive next step for you? Was that always the aim or was that something that you kind of fell into as you as you left university? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. I kind of fell into it. And I think it was really kind of a testament to that first program I majored in information technology web science. I think the program is really unique because it's kind of built off of three major pillars. So like one third of it is really focused on the technical skills. So a very traditional computer science curriculum. But We also learned a lot of like web development and how to just quickly build up web infrastructure, build a website. Another third of it was really business, but really from the perspective of understanding how like corporations decide what technology solutions to use and kind of understanding the mechanics of building stuff for a big company. And the last third was really open as a concentration. And so that really gave me the space and capacity to explore more of the creative side, which is what I actually originally came to RPI as. I knew I loved technology, but I also loved 
the design aspect and a little bit of photo editing, video editing too. And so <laughs> that was that last area that I got to explore. And so the other part about the program that is really interesting is every semester, there's a big term project. So you're paired up with three or four other students and you're pretty much told to build something. And then later towards the program, you're actually building something for a large corporation. Uh, there was companies like United and Deloitte and Johnson & Johnson sponsoring. And I kind of realized that I was not the person to write the backend code. I just didn't find <laughs> any joy in doing it. You know, I was learning how to do it and it was important that I did. But I did find a real immense value and fulfillment kind of doing all the other aspects. So like really scoping it, designing the wireframes, communicating, doing all the decks and the technical writing and kind of like we say in product, right, kind of having influence of that authority because we're all just students. And so didn't really know what the term product was. But later on, when I was speaking to someone and someone brought up Microsoft and they told me about the PM role, it kind of was like a major like eureka moment. Like, oh, like that's I can do that after I graduate. Like, and they'll pay me. Wow. <laughs> it's like, yeah, this thing's got a name, right? Yeah. But on that, I mean, Microsoft obviously based out in Washington quite a big move from out east. Did you specifically seek out Microsoft and think that was the place you wanted to go? I mean, mm -hmm. traditionally, a lot of people, if they were going to go anywhere, would probably go to Silicon Valley and try and work for one of the, the new big tech companies, right? But but was Microsoft just in the right place at the right time? Or, or was that actually something that you looked at and thought, yeah, this is for me? Yeah, I actually would really say I was in the right place at the right time. And quite truthfully, too, and this is a little bit back with my background, going to a very traditional engineering school and already starting out kind of not fitting the mold of a lot of traditional students there, I definitely developed a sense of imposter syndrome, just thinking, especially when I was younger, that if I wasn't writing code, I was not valuable to a company. And if I never got good at it, no one would hire me. So I actually didn't even... When Microsoft came to the career fair, I, I just didn't even have the bravery to go up. I was like, why would they waste their time with me? And so it took a lot of encouragement and a lot of people kind of pushing me to do it. And even so, when I was interviewing, I just didn't think I was going to get it, right? I, I just I didn't have a word to verbalize what my skills were in comparison to the rest of the people interviewing for very traditional software engineering roles. So when the opportunity fell in my lap, and it wasn't in my plans to move across the country, but... It just seemed too ripe for opportunity to say no. And, and so it's been fun moving across and kind of starting anew in a different city. But is it weird being called a program manager? I mean, I mm -hmm. said I wasn't going to talk about it, but <laughs> yeah. of course, it's really, the only, it's really the only product management role that I'm aware of that, that's called that. And I know why, obviously, because of the, the legacy of Microsoft and the fact that product managers were an existing job title before product became a thing. But do you still get invited to product management parties or, or are you kind of just sort of sitting there on, on the outside? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think you spoke to Jackie in a previous episode. And so really my first exposure to the term program management was reading Cracking the PM Interview and kind of understanding <laughs> the historical context of it because I was also very confused. And so I really do like the historical connotation. Like it's kind of cool working at a company that was foundational and kind of building out the discipline. And so I have a lot of reverence for the title itself mechanically, when I describe myself, and when I think about my day to day, I think it's very closely aligned to product management. So truthfully, I do use it interchangeably when talking with people outside of the company. The one thing I will do extra clarification on, though, and I've done some recruiting at my university, I will always clarify that program slash product management is different than project management. Project management is usually a subset. And so people, when people mix it up, I do worry that there's a little bit of confusion of expectations of roles. And so just kind of teaching about that is important for clarity, I think. 
Yeah, I think it's it's bad enough because a lot of product managers are already complaining that they're really seen as as project managers, you know, just because of the cultures of the companies that they're in or the the working practices in their organization. And and it just feels that that would be exacerbated although obviously everyone knows about Microsoft and I'm, everyone knows the history so I'm sure that, that that's okay, but I imagine it probably wouldn't be okay if that was replicated somewhere else. So let's hope that doesn't spread. So let's go to Clubhouse. Let's do it. <laughs> let's do it. So you originally started getting some attention when you tweeted about trying to get onto Clubhouse and basically being told that your name wasn't a real name. Getting quite a snarky message, if I remember rightly. It wasn't like just a sorry or anything. It was like, yeah, hey, hey, schmuck, it's, it's you, not us or whatever. And obviously then you tweeted that and started to build a bit of a conversation around how annoying that was and, and how offensive that was. And then that really started to move on to this whole broader conversation about diversity and inclusion in product and product development. But before all of that happened, I mean, how did you feel yourself when you tried to sign into that app and or tried to sign up for that app and and that happened is that something that happens often with apps that you go on to yeah yeah so i got an invite luckily and i wanted to sign up because i signed up on a friday night and i wanted to attend a talk on that saturday and so really that was the true intention was just to try you know a fun new app on a weekend and get to be able to attend and so i put my name in and it was really i guess the first field or screen that you saw when you signed up and getting that message the first thing was just general functional annoyance because I knew that I want to attend and the only <laughs> mitigation is to email this email address, right? And you, as an end user, right, you don't really know where that in, like that email is going to go or if you're ever going to get a response if you're just screaming into a void. So functionally and surface level, I was like, this is just, this is not a great onboarding experience and I am frustrated as a user. A little bit deeper than that, though, that's where it, can, it kind of reminded me of some of the broader implications around some of the localization and globalization when we think about products overall. And I felt when I posted it, I personally felt a deep sense of deja vu. And a couple of friends noted it too, because pretty much the same exact thing happened to me about two years ago with Lyft, the ride sharing service. I actually had traveled back to New Jersey for the holidays. I was at the airport, just got off of the plane. I was about to book a ride share back to my parents' house. And I got an email telling me that my name was in violation of community guidelines. And I found that really confusing because I had been using the service already probably for two or three years already in Seattle, and my name hadn't changed. And so once again, functionally, it was just really annoying because I relied on that service. And so I, once again, I tweeted it and I got picked up by uh, some press like Business Insider and stuff because a lot of other users were also getting kind of this very dire message about their account. So it led me to really think about how how important diversity and inclusion is even in just pure product decision making because if we don't think about it these types of blockers you know innocuous today could be really impactful on populations in the future yeah and it's not uncommon for people to when challenged on this stuff just say oh well it's too hard to do that but this is this isn't quite that because you can kind of understand kind of and i emphasize kind of what they were trying to do right they're trying to not have lots of offensive, horrible, sweary names put onto this thing, which I guess you could understand why they might do that. But it feels like the implementation was really ropey. I guess the question is, aside from the ropiness of it all and the fact that it kind of offended your product sensibilities, I mean, do you think that they shouldn't try to keep it clean 
at all or do you just think that they just need to do a much better job of it yeah that's a wonderful question and exactly the same way that i would frame it the first question i ask is you know i i do believe the content moderation is really important and when we think about different marginalized communities online having those safeguards and protections are really really important especially in social networks whether you have you know millions or billions of people connecting and making sure that there is a correct environment so that is definitely an affirmative from me the other, the one question I do have is in terms of first the prioritization of what they're actually monitoring <laughs> on, right? Because Clubhouse is an audio focused app, and I've already read a little bit of kind of like literary criticisms about how they're managing that, and you know, wondering how they're going to be able to scale building these audio rooms and making sure that there aren't people out there saying the wrong thing or being offensive on purpose. So it just seems very peculiar to content moderate on names when they're so culturally diverse. And then also thinking about what their scaling solution is going to be. I think forever just saying, hey, email us and hope for the best, I don't think is right. (laughs) And I actually heard from other people after I posted my tweet that they've actually been trying to reach Clubhouse for two or three weeks and they didn't didn't get a response yet, right? And so they fear not being able to be part of this community already and kind of just waiting, right? And feeling somewhat marginalized from these types of policies. So... I'm not against the idea, but especially for something like a name field in Clubhouse's case, or even for Lyft, someone brought up a really good point for Lyft is since they do e-commerce, they have my payment methods on on record. And, you know, my name has had no problem with large banking institutions. Just wondering if, you know, was it decided that they didn't want to do a check or if it wasn't worth it is the really interesting bit. And, you know, the broader point of the tweet too is it really just comes into question about the importance of uh, building products with diverse teams. If someone was in the room, you know, that had a friend or had a last name or any type of experience to kind of just advocate and say, hey, let's take a pause for a minute and think about those implications. All of this could have been avoided, right? And I think that is that is the main crux of why it's so important to have representation of your users in the representation of the product team. But this is the old cliche, right, that you hear all the time around basically rooms full of Silicon Valley guys, tech bros, all like throwing money at each other and and just building stuff and never thinking about anyone that doesn't look exactly like them. Now, do you think that's a fair, I don't know if it's fair, but like, do you think that's a fair characterization of, of some of these companies that they're not quite that bad, but like they're just sitting there, tunnel vision, they don't even consider a single perspective outside of their own world. Do you think that's fair to, to sort of label people like that? Yeah, I think for Clubhouse in particular, I think it's important if their main core value proposition is building a network and like building the users to come and add their content and connect people. I think we have to keep a critical lens about how a lot of these decisions are made and keep them and held responsible, right? And I think we're kind of right now in 2021 starting to really understand some of the repercussions of big tech creating these social networks without safeguards in mind and kind of cleaning up the mess too. And so for Clubhouse in particular, right, I I don't think it was intentional bad action, right? But that amount of negligence, especially as they continue to scale and grow, will continue to have really dangerous impact. So it's not something that we can chalk up and just purely say, you know, they're a small team and we got to let it go. It's saying, hey, we understand the challenges, but how do you build around that? And that should be one of the foundational problems that you you look to solve as you're scaling, you know, especially in Silicon Valley, where there's a lot of tech and a lot of smart people that can help answer those questions with you. 
So you eventually got onto Clubhouse. So I'm assuming that that they got back to you after you threw your email into the void. Yeah. What was the reaction like? Yeah, I will just highlight. So they actually responded to me within 24 hours. Uh, They responded to me on a Saturday. And when I actually read the message, I think it was slightly customized because they... I wrote some I wrote some notes in my mail and there's a screenshot in my tweet too talking about the need for diversity on teams and they said they really appreciated my thoughtful feedback. So they got back to me pretty soon, but once again I'll kind of highlight a little bit of the privilege I got with the tweet going popular. I had already a small audience and people really started to promote it and have other people see it too. So I think part of that was the element of why I got such an expedient response. <laughs> there's still a lot of other users who are kind of just waiting, you know, for a response for them. Yeah, it's easy to jump on the response for someone who's just shouted at you with a megaphone, right? Yeah, exactly. It's not not something that that everyone gets. But speaking of that megaphone, obviously, as you say, you got some traction on Twitter with this original post, and and then that obviously kicked off various discussions, and and as you say, got picked up by some media, and and that was obviously really positive to at least highlight some of these issues. But on Twitter itself, what was the positive reaction that you got on Twitter from this stuff? Yeah, yeah, I will say like majority of the responses was generally positive. And it was really people feeling aligned and feeling outraged with me and really affirming my position that, hey, this isn't, this isn't just a small slight, like this needs to be fixed and and mitigated. And we have to have a conversation that I was trying to start to have too. So overall, I think it was a really positive experience. And I really found that to be kind of uplifting and like reaffirming some of my position. Especially, I think when I look at the angle a little bit, uh, a little bit sidetracked, right? But thinking a little bit of my position as an Asian American in, you know, in a major city and growing up where I was uh, a racial minority, you know, there's all these like little small slights that happen. And sometimes when you describe it or you call it out, there isn't as strong of affirmation that you should, it's worth for you to say. And so I was always a little bit hesitant to kind of say something about it. And so it felt really nice. It felt really empowering that when I shared this one problem and people kind of just got it, it, it was really, really great. Yeah, that's interesting. The whole thing about not wanting to say it because you feel that other people aren't going to be on your side. And that that's obviously a really common, it's really common occurrence these days. And actually, in some in some ways, it feels like the the fact that these discussions are being had more these days is in some ways exacerbating that problem with a certain type of respondent. Yeah, so yeah. there are going to be some people that, in their imaginary words, would be saying something like, "Well, you know, all you're doing is talking about yourself. It's all about identity politics and blah blah blah." Yeah, they're saying this stuff all the time in all of their different social media places that they're still allowed. That's obviously very different to the experience of someone like yourself who's had to put up with stuff like this, I assume, for basically all your life. So what what's your response to people that, that sit there and say, Oh, you're just being too sensitive or oh it's not too much or it's you know, you it's it's just a joke or all these other people that, that, that do say that sort of thing in response to this type of issue? Yeah, like I going back to the tweet and some of the respondents, like there are some other populations of people that respond and I'll categorize it as a couple different groups. Like there was one group, exactly what you described, Jason, kind of like, you know, this isn't really a problem, just put in a fake name. Like really, I think the verb was trying to minimize the problem. And like, definitely that was just, it was hurtful to me just because, you know, I, I had shown a little bit of vulnerability and I was hoping for understanding and empathy. And obviously those people didn't show it or reflect it. And for those people, you know, I just really hope that one day they continue to grow their capacity for empathy. I was like trying to think of an analogy to help kind of understand that feeling. But if you were like back in the day when you used to go to a restaurant and sit down and eat with friends and family, 
you know, there's a certain part of pain when you're the last person or your food came late. And there's all the social, you know, all this pressure of not having people eat ahead. And then if someone next to you said, you know, why are you complaining? Like you're still getting your food, right? Like that doesn't minimize the annoyance, right? You know, you would want to hear from someone saying, hey, like, don't worry, like, let's ask the waiter and things like that. Like, those small acts of allyship are really what help people feel confident to speak up when they are feeling oppressed. And so that one element was disappointing. There was also another just population of people that I think one went one step above that. And so they identified, yeah, this is problematic. But they really were like, let's use regular expressions to fix it, or let's use machine <laughs> learning. And that kind of, once again, kind of was not my point about this conversation. When I was in university, the probably the most pinnacle lesson that we learned is that there's almost like a three-legged stool of technology solutions. It's the people, the processes, and technology. And especially coming from an engineering school, we love talking about the tech. We think that is the hardest problem. <laughs> and that is what's going to make us all the money. And that's how you move up in industry. But in reality, right, a lot of it is the people and processes. And so that was my general observation around this whole debacle, right? It was like, who were the people involved in deciding this? And what were their thought processes and design processes to allow it? And what are the implications, right? And so that population of people, it's a little bit harder because I think I think a lot of people's mindsets are very, are very attuned to technology because it's been rewarded for so long. And so opening those conversations and hopefully having people being a little bit more receptive to that is how you build a little bit more alignment in those types of problems. But yeah, overall, the po- the positive response has been, I think, really, really nice. And it, it wasn't just from people in tech on Twitter, but a couple of friends and family reached out and said, you know, this is really silly. Yeah, it's interesting that what you said about people thinking it's yeah, basically nothing. And it's like, I've always tended to think that the people that think it's nothing are obviously the people that aren't offended by it because it's not ever happened to them. Those are the last people in the world that actually get to say whether something's offensive or a problem or not, right? Because Ultimately, that just because it's not a problem for them doesn't mean it's not a problem for anyone else. And also, it really annoys me actually because I was just thinking while you were talking around like how they could have maybe tried to solve this in some way. Because I was thinking, well, you know, sure, let's imagine that it was somehow important for them to do this name thing for whatever reason. Like, there are some really easy ways to check if this is going to be a problem. If we go back to that kind of machine learning data, this data, that's like just download the damn phone book. And just run that against your list and see how many matches you get. And that would be, that would, that would tell you if there's a problem, right? Yeah. The funniest bit about this whole thing is, yeah, like just trying to explain it to my mom, right? And, you know, explaining the whole thing about the app and it was invite only. And so I got to the point where I was like, yeah, they wouldn't let me join because of my name. And she was like, you know, the name is really popular, right? Like even if you go to Vancouver, or you go to these other areas, right? It's not that it's not uncommon. It's just not represented, right? And so my mom couldn't even fathom it because for a long time where she grew up and lived, it was never really an issue. And so once again, right, it's just making you kind of wonder where is the globalization happening? And it's I'm in globalization, right? Like I'm a user in Seattle. It's just a really interesting thing to kind of latch onto and want to solve, especially as kind of an, what I consider their product being an MVP. Like I think it's pretty... It's pretty beta for uh, other aspects too. Like we haven't even talked about kind of like the accessibility element, uh, the platform exclusivity or how they don't even allow um, recordings, right? And so if you live in a different time zone, you can't listen to a lot of these really big headliner talks, right? And so 
once again, I understand I'm empathetic that it's new, but like constantly checking and asking if they're making progress or what's the roadmap, I think is really important as they become more popular. I've just checked on LinkedIn even, and there's 24,000 people with the surname Poon, or at least that in their name somewhere. So you're right. It's not like it's just you sitting there going to be complaining about this. So yeah, definitely they should do some research. And I still question why they even bothered putting it in in the first place, given yeah, like you say, how new it is and and how much other stuff they've they've still got to fix. It, it just feels like, yeah, maybe they just copied something from somewhere, thought it was a good idea, didn't think about the repercussions, and then obviously that's come back to hit them. So hopefully they'll make better decisions going forward. But but what's your experience with diversity and inclusion at Microsoft? I mean, it's your first job in your career, as you said, and you've moved out west to to be there and. It's obviously a really big company, really long-standing company. I'm assuming it has lots of initiatives itself, but at the same time, initiatives aren't necessarily going <laughs> to not going to fix everything. So, have you found it's been a very positive experience, as you say, as an Asian American woman in tech? How's how's that been for you out there? Yeah, um, I first first of all, I just got to say that in the three years I've been at the company, I have been really well supported. And I think the culture that they're building and investing in at the local team level, like on the edge level, and then company up, um, I think there's been a deep investment of time and commitment and energy from everyone to kind of build an environment that a whole bunch of people will decide to come. And, and you know, it's almost a symbiotic relationship, right? Because if you bring in more people different types of people. And, you know, especially with like young people coming from university, if you're attractive for them to work there and stay there, you know, like they'll, they'll do good work for you too. Diversity inclusion is really interesting too, because once again, based off of my experiences of attending an engineering school, it was pretty interesting. So 70% of the school population at RPI is actually men and the rest being women. And so I've always kind of been preconditioned to uh, exist and operate Uh, kind of as an outlier, as a minority and things like that too. And so going back to Microsoft, when I think about it, I think there's like a level of how we think about almost like cultural hygiene. And so when you go to a company, like, are you respected as, you know, as a human being? Are you heard and listened to? Are there not any like real outward, aggressive, you know, sexist, racist, uh, ableist attacks on you and things like that? And that totally is really, really good. And I would have to really praise Microsoft. But I will describe there are two, I guess, two elements where I do expend, I feel like a little bit more energy in my own lived experience as a minority uh, working at Microsoft. The first real element is really then starting to do kind of the mental math or the mental questioning whenever there's microaggression or if there's just a poor interaction that happens, whether it's, you know, someone talks over me or even I was having a conversation with a few friends who were still pretty junior at Microsoft you know, always being the person to ask to take notes or to schedule the meeting or do a lot of administrative tasks, right? Sometimes you have to do this kind of questioning. And I think also part of it comes with intersectionality. Like, was it because I was a woman? Was it because I was the youngest person? And then it even gets more interesting, especially in the product role, where a lot of our strengths and the reasons why we were hired is because, you know, we're, we're very into being organized and creating clarity. And so sometimes when we do feel slighted, we, we don't really know where it's actually pinpointing or if we're even overthinking it. And so speaking to other like young women at Microsoft, we realize that that's just part of the cost that we have to continue to operate. The other element for me that's been really important is representation. And so growing up, I realized I just didn't have a lot of representation, whether it was in media or even when thinking about my career. 
And looking back at my time at RPI, I think that's why I actually spent a lot of time there, almost five and a half years kind of just exploring and only discovering product really late because it was kind of hard to find people you know, who had similar lived experiences as me charting a path in a career that I was interested in. And so I think the other additional task that I do while I'm at Microsoft is, you know, proactively looking for for role models I can find. And, you know, it's just a little bit more difficult right now. And I think that's a problem that we're actively solving now. But even when I sign up for like mentoring rings or I'm looking for my next mentor, it takes a little bit more time for this one facet. I do believe in terms of overall mentorship, I believe kind of as like a kind of having your own board of trustees, like your mentors should be diverse and based of all different identities and the way you work too. But finding one that is more kind of that more symbolic role model has been a little bit more difficult at the company. Yeah, I guess that should hopefully be something that improves as time progresses and as more women get into more leadership roles, because obviously that's still a massive problem in tech as well as whilst the representation at the sort of lower to mid levels of the company is probably improving Mm -hmm. because there are lots of efforts to do that. There's obviously still this massive top heavy dude thing going on with certainly at the top of a lot of the tech companies so i guess hopefully as those people start to move up and take those management positions then that should really help with that as well so fingers crossed that will move in the right direction but do you aside from clubhouse which obviously is the most recent example do you have any other examples that come to the top of your mind of products or services or things that you've tried to use or or have used that are also getting this type of thing so being inclusive and and encouraging as you say internationalization and and general inclusivity are there any other apps out there that you just think just aren't doing it well at all yeah like i'll highlight actually one area that i did notice and actually said something and i'm not sure if that one got picked up by the product team but i think has been a focus too I think quite early on when Twitter released a new feature around like voice tweeting, kind of like voice memos that you can send out, they had announced the feature and made it available once again. And a lot of people were using it. And when I explored the feature myself, I realized once again, there wasn't any type of closed captioning. And so populations of people who are hard of hearing or listening, once again, were completely excluded from enjoying the content that was being shared in the networks. And so when Twitter was asked about it, we actually discovered that the team that drives accessibility for Twitter, which is this global, large technology company, I think the way that the team was positioned, it was really like a V team. And it wasn't a core team's focus. Like it was always something that you did on the side. And that's how this new feature made it to the public without actually having basic accessibility for a really large population of people. And a lot of people called it out and said it was really deeply problematic. And I think Twitter made investments. And even yesterday, I was actually trying out funny enough, uh, Twitter spaces. So kind of the clubhouse compete on Twitter. Yeah, fake, fake clubhouse, right? <laughs> yeah. And the first thing I noticed when I was playing around with the UI is actually I saw that there was uh, built-in transcriptions and closed captionings at the get-go. So the feature itself, you know, is still in beta. And actually, the interesting thing is their user research team is actually using the feature to open up to users and actually learn what they like about it. So I thought that was really cool. But it's at the get-go. And I think it kind of was a wake-up call for them to realize that it's not Accessibility itself is not just something that you latch on the last minute. It's not the waterfall method where you, you know, tack on something and you hope for the best, right? I think focusing on that and making sure that when we build products, checking our identities 
and like our allyship and what we're doing is super important. So I want to highlight like that growth area for Twitter because I'm actually I was really, really pleased that they had that yesterday. Uh, Again, it's always good to see things moving, albeit slowly in the right direction. So fingers crossed that conversations like this one and conversations like you had on Twitter will be some of the pebbles that help to start the landslide. You also talked about the importance of combining humanities with tech, science, and being really rounded. I don't know if that's something that you think is important just for product managers or if that's just your general prescription. Why why do you think it's so important to have such a a wide range of abilities or, or interests? Yeah, that's a it's a very it's a multi level question or answer from me. <laughs> uh, like, I, I think for me the reason why I've always been really deeply excited and invested in technology is I really see it as a really powerful tool to solve people's problems, and that's like at the most fundamental level, right? Whenever I try a new app, I, I wonder, oh, is this going to improve my life or is this going to enable something? And I even think about my experience too. I worked a lot of retail, so I worked at Best Buy Mobile and I worked at the Apple Store, like. The joy of going to work was helping someone, you know, fix their iPhone or teach them about something too. And so that is what really resonates with me internally and when I think about myself as a product person. And so the thing going back to kind of the pyramid of technology and people and processes, though, is like the hardest part about building these types of things is understanding the people and processes. And so how do you build a foundational knowledge or a framework about thinking about solving for people if people aren't in the main view? And I was not in high school recently, but you know, I applied to colleges in, in the last decade or so. And there was a lot of push, especially for women, to apply to uh, STEM programs. And my school is a perfect example of that. But when I attended university, I kind of got mocked because I was interested in other things. I took classes in design and art history and in sociology. And later on, I actually took classes in law. And people thought that was just a pure waste of time. They just thought, well, that's not how to look good on your resume. Like, why would Microsoft care that you took this class about social justice and technology? And But I really find that those types of lessons that I learned have been really foundational of me becoming more empathetic and being a type of technologist that looks at you know, what social problems that we're solving. And also, once again, thinking about some of the implications for populations that I don't purely represent. And so... I'm really grateful for my time at RPI, and I'm actually really grateful for my parents to encourage this type of exploration. And I just kind of fear that when students now look to apply for colleges and they want to work at big tech and get you know that really nice paycheck, they kind of forget all those other elements that are really important for like a holistic education. Absolutely. And I think it's really interesting what you say about the empathy and kind of building a, a rounded portfolio of skills. And uh, what's next with your newfound fame? Are you going to, you know, now, now that you're a Twitter influencer and you've got a voice, uh, uh, what, what's next? Are you, are you going to use that for good or is it time to concentrate on the day job and retreat from the public eye? I hopefully continue using it for good. Um, I've had that Twitter account for a really long time. I use it a bit professionally when ta- you know talking about features and stuff like that too. But finding the community, getting to meet you and having the platform to kind of talk about these things that are kind of sometimes less in the spotlight, especially uh, from a university standpoint, has, I think, been really a gift and a privilege. And so any way possible in the future that I can kind of use this small Twitter following to bring it up in conversation, I'll try to. Again, small pebbles, right? And where can people reach out to you if they want to talk about any of the issues we've spoken about on this call or just connect with you in general and talk about products? Sorry, programs. 
Uh, easiest place is on Twitter and it's uh, at Candice Poon. Excellent. I'll make sure to link that and hope that it gets past my uh, web server's ill-formed policies. <laughs> cool. Well, that's been really fantastic to, to go through that story and obviously talk about some of the issues that it's uncovered. And hopefully in some small way, people can listen to this and start to think if, if they weren't thinking about that already. Hopefully you and I can keep in touch. But as for now, thanks very much for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. As ever, thanks for listening. If you found this content interesting or inspiring, I'd appreciate it if you could go over to onenightinproduct.com, that's night with a K, or to your podcast app of choice, subscribe, leave a review, rate, share, all that good stuff. I'll be back soon with my next inspiring guest, but for now, thank you and good night. <laughs>